Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the Islamic Thought Podcast, episode 6. Today, we have a very special episode for you, which will be covering the history of fiqh, along with a lot of the discussions that delve into the development of fiqh, uh, both from, you know, a historical perspective and from a contemporary perspective, and how really the context of fiqh is applied today. So with us, we have a very special guest, uh, who many of you may know. Uh, his name is Salman, and Salman has um, a background in political science at a bachelor's level with a minors in economics. He also has a bachelor's in fiqh from Umar al University, um, and he's currently pursuing a master's in fiqh. So without further ado, Assalamu uh, alaikum, Sheikh. How are you doing, Salman? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, pleasure to have you. Much looking forward to the discussion. Likewise. So before we get into it, um, just some really, really general, you know, outlook on fit within itself today. Um, now, from sort of my experience dealing with fit directly, fit has always been one of those things where, as a as a young Muslim child. You grow up and you go to the traditional institutes, you learn sort of how to pray salah, uh, how to, you know, purify yourself, so on and so forth. But when it actually comes to moving past the institutional education that you have traditionally, um, fiqh really becomes something of the distant past because you're doing it every day and you don't really look into it much until the point comes where you actually face a new situation. And this opens up the whole topic of ijtihad and what it is and what it isn't. So, I mean, majority of the Muslims today, they, they go through this exact same process where they've taken these rulings and it's fine for them until they actually come up with a new issue and they actually need an answer. They need to start from the scratch again and actually go back to see what fiqh is. Where did fiqh come from? What does fiqh actually entail? And the historical development from, you know, really from the time of Rasulullah um, up until maybe the former Dahib, you could say, or even further than that. So from that perspective, Salman, I mean, where do we even start from in defining what fiqh is? Well, that's a really big question because um, if you really look at fiqh in terms of its uh, importance to... Uh, Islamic civilization as a whole. It's always been something that has very, been very central to the, uh, number one, the intellectual life of the Ummah, uh, yeah. as sometimes the leading intellectuals of uh, Islamic society, certainly in the past, maybe not so much today, uh, in the modern era, but the modern era in that sense would be an exception to the rule. Uh, mm. you know, throughout, throughout history, the leading sort of intellectual figures of the Ummah tended to be its fuqaha, uh, the leading uh, scholarly authorities uh, for the ummah were the fuqaha, and fiqh was uh, essential to any educated person's, uh, uh, any lettered person's education that he would receive. It was uh, central to the life of the community, uh, of the society, uh, it was very important uh, as a pillar of the state. So um, 
this is aside from the fact that obviously on a day-to-day basis in the life of the individual, uh, there are all these things that the, from the time that he wakes up until the time that he goes to sleep, ahkam that he needs to know, rulings that he needs to know in order to be able to practice them properly. Um, so, you know, fiqh is something that is very central to the life of the ummah. Uh, and so it, it, the first thing that needs to be understood is this centrality that it has. And I would argue that even even um, today, when perhaps um, in, in the modern era, the ummah has undergone considerable amount of changes, some of them negative changes, um, and is still undergoing changes. For the average Muslim, um, maybe you know the the role of the fuqaha at a, a state level, at a political level, uh, at the level of the judiciary, is not what it once was. But yet, even then, fiqh still has a very central role in the life of the average uh, Muslim. Certainly, when it comes to practicing Muslims, and it still has a significant role in um in islamic societies muslim societies in general so uh from that angle it's something that's extremely important so it is very important to understand what it is um i think really one of the best discussions on on fiqh um is actually uh imam al-ghazali in uh, he starts off with discussing what is the meaning of fiqh uh, when it comes up in the uh, Sharia text? So, for example, we have um, uh, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He said, "Man bihi Whoever Allah intends good for, He gives him fiqh in the religion. And fiqh, basically, uh, from a linguistic angle, it means uh, understanding. So, He gives him understanding of the religion. And uh, some some of them say that actually fiqh means deep understanding. Um, so fiqh is understanding of the things that are not immediately obvious and will not be understood and grasped by everyone. Uh, so we see it. Uh, it's this term is used in this hadith uh, that whoever Allah intends good for, He gives him understanding in the religion. Uh, likewise, in the Quran, in fact, it's used as well. Allah uh, That you know, from every group of of them, uh, of the Muslims, there should go out a group, a party, uh, a a select group of them for the purpose of tafakkuhfiddin, of basically acquiring fiqh in the religion. Now. The question then is, what exactly does this refer to when it comes up in these texts of the Quran and of the Sunnah? Uh, Imam uh, Al-Ghazali says that basically, fiqh of the religion, understanding of the religion, fiqh in this in this maqam, in this in this context, when uh, talking about uh, the Sharia texts, fiqh is not limited to knowledge of the rulings. Uh, of actions that this is halal or this is wajib this is haram this is mustahab this is makruh that is generally what you know fiqh the as as a as a developed uh, science 
has come to be, uh, this term has come to be applied to specifically to these sorts of ahkam. But um, uh, in, in the Sharia itself, when the term fiqh is used, uh, the idea of having understanding of the religion, having fiqh, fiddin, is more comprehensive than that. It applies first and foremost even to the um, the the uh, aspect of the, the spiritual aspects. Uh, for example, knowing how to deal with riya, uh, knowing how to deal with lack of ikhlas, uh, knowing how to purify your soul, and linking all the different branches of of the deen together. That is what is meant when when um, the term fiqh is used in these texts, and also perhaps in the statements of some of the the the, the very early scholars from the Sahaba and the Tabi'een. When they refer to fuqaha, they mean it with this comprehensive understanding. Uh, later on, it fiqh becomes the title of a specialized field as as the Islamic sciences start to develop and become uh, you know. Uh, separate branches that are um, developing into mature sciences. Each one is known by a particular a particular title. So you have um, uh, aqida, and you have uh, tafsir, and you have uh, hadith, and you have fiqh. And so fiqh deals specifically with with the the uh, with the rulings. I think as we go through our historical discussion, we'll see that that um, that historically, fiqh in this this narrower meaning. By the way, the reason that Imam Al Ghazali has brought up this discussion uh, about the meaning of fiqh was for the purpose of saying that look, li- limiting fiqh to the ahkam uh, is a problem in terms of when you deal with the, someone who's a specialist in fiqh. That you'll have, you'll find many of, of them. For example, will be a specialist in fiqh, and he knows all sorts of obscure rulings uh, for s- issues and scenarios which he himself may never face in his life. Maybe uh, he may never even be asked about it. Yet he's he's mastered the, these details, and yet when it comes to, for example. Uh, a person asks him, or he himself needs to know, I'm suffering from riya. How do I deal with it? Uh, I, I, you know, my ikhlas is lacking. How do I deal with it? My iman is low. How do I deal with this? He would know the answer. And so this was actually one of the things that he set out to to address when he wrote his Ihya Ulum din was to, to sort of uh, link the ahkam of fiqh with the, these, the spiritual aspect. So he brought it up in, in that context, but the point that he made is, is an important one, that this is, this is how sort of the usage of the, the, the term evolved, and it became to be associated with this specific field. And so in our context, when we're discussing fiqh, we're going to be discussing it um, with, this partic- with this particular meaning, where it applies specifically to the development of uh, of rulings for different actions. This action is wajib. This action is mustahab. This action is mubah. This action uh, is makruh, haram, so forth. Uh, and we'll see that that uh, fiqh, as it develops as a field, uh, becomes very important and is perhaps, uh, in in many respects, the most influential 
of all of the different specialties. So, you know, historically, the fuqaha as a class, I would say, were probably in Islamic civilization uh, of greater importance and influence than, say, for example, mufassirin. Uh, uh, well, to say nothing of, you know, uh, grammarians. No, is a very important field of study and a very important specialization that you'll find some of the Sharia scholars specialized in Arabic grammar uh, or, you know, the, the various Arabic sciences. Uh, but as important as they are, you know, the influence of these scholars uh, in Islamic civilization was not as great as the fuqaha. Um, so, yeah, this is what fiqh means, and this is what we are referring to when we refer to the fuqaha. Although, obviously, I mean, it goes without saying that oftentimes there's going to be overlap. So you have, uh, for example, important mufassirin who are in reality fuqaha. Uh, in many cases, you find that a number of them were even qadis. They were judges, uh, such as um, uh, Ibn Atiyah, who I think, without a doubt, one of the greatest tafsirs. Um, he was a qadi. Um, uh, At-Tabari, you know, is, is considered to be uh, the founder of his own madhab. And, you know, so, you know, clearly he's a faqih as well. And uh, also sort of, in, in a certain sense, the founder of tafsir as a mature, developed science. Um, and so forth. So you'll find that, you know, scholars who specialize, who are, who are known for their involvement in other fields, that they might very well also be fuqaha. But uh, if, if we speak about as a class, which is the most influential, there's no doubt that the fuqaha were the most influential. And this is also one of the reasons why this discussion is so important, that uh, given how important and influential fiqh was historically, uh, it makes it all the more important to sort of understand its, uh, its historical development. Definitely. And one of the things that I guess comes to mind um, is that, is there really a distinction between when we talk about fiqh concerning maybe the madhahib and concerning ijtihad, and when we actually talk about sharia as a topic, is there any distinction between the two or do they overlap or are they sort of both uh, interlinked? Well, I think we can look in 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 this sense. We can look at Sharia as being uh, the actual revelation itself, as represented in the sources in the Quran and in the Sunnah. And fiqh then is an attempt to uh, understand and interpret those sources and derive from them operative rulings that can then be applied. Um, uh, at least in, in the aspect that relates to the, the ahkam, the yeah. rulings, rulings of, of different actions. So uh, in, in, in that sense, fiqh is sort of the attempt of scholars to actualize the sharia into actionable points. Yeah, yeah that's definitely a very important point. Um, now, Moving on to, you know, tariq al-fiqh, the history of fiqh within itself, both from, you know, a research, a teaching, and also comparing both uh, Eastern scholarship versus, you know, the Orientalist narratives and perspectives that are present today. Uh, one of the things I would say that really benefited me when I initially got into fiqh myself was uh, Dr. Hatim al-Hajj mentions that 
essentially the whole topic of fiqh, it has to take into account that there is a need to improve the condition of human beings uh, in order to utilize and facilitate for the worship between a human being and his creator. And this tends to be one of the major objectives of fiqh within itself, especially for those students that uh, have gone into fiqh and those that want to attempt to sort of try and get a grasping of what am I actually going to achieve by studying fiqh? What am I actually going to achieve by, you know, going through the discussions of fiqh, so on and so forth? So I guess one main question that comes to mind is that when we actually study the history of fiqh, what is one of the primary objectives that we should actually seek um, to actually benefit from that? Um, because, I mean, we're going to discuss a lot of points, right? But for those students that maybe haven't really looked into the history of fiqh before, what would be something that you would say to them to sort of extract, what would you say, as a concept from the history within itself? When you study fiqh, the discussions tend to be abstract and theoretical. Yeah. Uh, even, even uh, I'm not just talking about usul fiqh, even fiqh, even though fiqh involves actual rulings for actual actions, for actual scenarios. The discussion is, uh, is abstract in the sense that, that these discussions developed in historical contexts. Uh, and I don't just mean, for example, the social context, even the intellectual context. Um, so knowing the, the, the historical development, I think, is important for, for appreciating that context. Because the reality is that we as human beings, we are um, uh, subject to the influences that surround us in our societies, in the era that we live in. Uh, even in terms of the subjects that we have studied, the, 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 the ideas that prevail in our time that will then influence the way that we think, not, not having a, an appreciation of that history will lead to a person reading things as they're reading the, the fiqh, re reading them basically outside of the historical context. Yeah. And, if you and so that, that then is a problem. Uh, more than that, I think, can be said. Certainly for me, the reason that I think that this topic is very important um, and why I'm, uh, I think it needs to be given more importance is that when, um, as a practitioner of fiqh today, uh, you have, a, uh, number one, we have the Sharia sources, which are themselves vast. Uh, the Quran perhaps is limited in terms of it's limited to a certain corpus, um, 114 surahs uh, of varying length, basically a single book. It's something that can be read in a short period of time. As for understanding it, obviously that's a, that's a different discussion, but the corpus in that sense is somewhat limited. With the sunnah, it's much broader than that. The sunnah, you know, is... Uh, Reading and understanding and, and encompassing the sunnah, obviously, is, is a much broader undertaking. And then after that, you have 1,400 years of, of scholarship in fiqh itself uh, that, you know, you as a student have to know how to navigate. And so 
to know that how to navigate that, number one, you, you sort of you need a roadmap. Uh, in that sense, understanding the history is sort of your roadmap for knowing how to navigate this vast tradition, much of which, by the way, there are you know, still many works that are still in manuscript form and have yet to be published. And this is even more important when you consider that now, because of the sort of the, um, the uh, digital era in which we're living, uh, a lot of those manuscripts are actually even readily available. You can simply download them on your computer. And, um, and, uh, 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 and just read them on your computer screen. So, you know, now, not, aside from the fact that, you know, so many of the books that in the past would not have been readily available to people just because they didn't have the financial capabilities or what have you, now those you will find that, you know, between Al Maktaba Shamila is accessible between uh, uh, the various PDF collections which basically you can download these books from online. This has now even reached the point that the, the manuscript collections are now starting to go online as well. So basically, you sort of have access to everything. Yeah. So the question of, of, well, where do you even start? Um, what, what do you read and what do you not read? Because you can't read it all. <laughs> and when you read it, how do you read it? Like, what, what is... The purpose. A lot of that. A lot of that. You need to have a sense of the history of how all of this developed, and you know, over. Four, you have to understand that that uh, chrono from from a chronological perspective, the this tradition you know reaches back fourteen hundred years. From a geographical perspective, it spans basically from you know basically from from Andalusia, Spain, on one end to the far east on the other end um, and you know in in all of these areas uh central asia india the middle east across north africa and into andalusia throughout this history you know scholars have been writing and producing works and much of those we have now so um when you speak about the tradition uh, you know, the tradition is, 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 is so vast and so unwieldy that you have to know how to, you have to, know how to navigate it. Yeah. Uh, a third point that I would make, and I think that this is, this is uh, really sort of ultimately what it comes down to, is that understanding how fiqh came to develop um, and how it was practiced I think is very important for gaining insight into, well, in the modern era, which clearly the modern era is an era in which the, um, the, uh, the, we as an ummah are facing a great deal of, of social, political, and intellectual upheaval. Um, it, it's very difficult to, to know how to navigate. There's not ready answers for you, I as a faqih or you as a faqih today what role are you expected to play in society, uh, in academia, in, you know, in, 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 as a mufti? Uh, obviously, you know, even, even 100, 200 years ago, um, 
the answers to those questions might have seemed, I think, much simpler than they are today. Today, there are no ready answers. So gaining insight into, well, what should the role of the faqih be today in the modern era in dealing with these uh, intellectual challenges, at least, um, is, I think, you know, a, uh, it, it requires understanding, well, this vast tradition that we have before us, what is it? How did it develop? How did it come to be what it is? And what, how, how do we need to interact with it for developing, uh, you know, fiqhi solutions, if you like, for mm. the fiqh, the big fiqh questions of our time? One point that's often posed and a lot of the time causes much controversy is the fact that, you know, we're going to get into the topic of maqasid later on, or maybe even this episode if we can. But it's the issue of wisdom or the objective of the sharia within itself. I mean, how important, very briefly, how important would you say that the wisdom and the objectives actually are when you're actually viewing fit from a contextual perspective in history and seeing its application, or rather as a faqih, determining its application today? Right. This is actually an important discussion because, uh, number one, it actually raises up certain questions about this aspect of fiqh, or, or I guess you could say usul fiqh, if you consider, if you look at it as a subset of usul fiqh, it didn't develop into sort of a genre of its own until somewhat late. I see. Uh, so you have, for example, Al-Ajizm Ibn Abdul Salam in the... Um, Seventh uh, century Hijra, uh, Hijri is uh, writing about uh, uh, about Muqasid uh, al-Sharia in his book Qawad al-Ahkam, and uh, Ash-Shatibi is writing about it basically a century later in Al-Muwafaqat. Um, and these are sort of the two classical works that are, you could say, are sort of dedicated to this science. Now, that doesn't mean that discussions about it didn't exist. They did, and there were important discussions about it um, in the books of, in the genre of usul, the usul al-fiqh in its more classical form. Uh, and these discussions that, 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 that you find from Al-Azib ibn Abdul Salam and from, um, from uh, Ash-Shatibi are, are an extension of those discussions that were already taking place in usul al-fiqh. But as, as a sort of a, a dedicated topic, it doesn't become a dedicated topic except, you know, at their hands. And then it doesn't really develop much further than that. Meaning after, after a shaltabi, you know, what is the next sort of major contribution to this topic, to this particular field of Muqasid al-Sharia? Uh, it's not until um, uh, Ibn Ashur that, that we, we have uh, the next major contribution to this topic and you know Ibn Ashur is a contemporary scholar he died in 1973 he was very long lived he, he uh, over 90 years old when he died uh, so I'm not sure I'm not sure what is the exact um, you know uh, point, what, what's the exact date of the publication of his book or when did he start writing it but yeah. it's a 20th century work so you know, there's a big gap there that mm. uh, um, Al-Iz is writing about it. And it doesn't mean that other people weren't writing about it or talking about it, but mm. in terms of dedicated writings, this is just to give an indication that, you know, in terms of dedicated writings, um, 
there wasn't much until uh, in that gap basically between Ibn Ashur and, um, and Ash'atibi. And then sort of after Ibn Ashur writes about it or, can, or around the time that Ibn Ashur is writing about it, all of a sudden it becomes a major topic of interest in the modern era. And a lot of people are writing about it. It's almost become a cottage, cottage industry of uh, maqasid sharia or just maqasid of anything. So, like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I, I would say right now, it's almost a fad. I'm not saying that everyone, everything that everyone is writing is just a fad. But yeah. uh, there's a lot of important write, uh, works that are being written. But it's become such a big thing that, uh, that you know, if you want to sort of sell your book, just call it maqasid. Of something. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the so there's that's a serious question that you know. Well, what happened? Yeah. Why all these centuries? Is it not a dedicated field? And now all of a sudden, there's sort of an explosion of discussions on this. Yeah. Uh, so you know that is a very big sort of question, and I'm not sure. I'm. I, I mean, I don't think at, at certainly not at this stage in the discussion. It's probably not the best place to try and answer it uh yeah. when you don't even have you know sort of a conception of what is the historical development but that actually is an example of one of those questions that you know if you don't if you if you don't understand the history and you also don't understand sort of the place and time we're living in right now relative to that history uh it will just sort of be a mystery well why is everybody discussing this now yeah uh, you know, did, did something happen? Uh, did you know? Obviously, something happened because people weren't writing about it. Mm. Something triggered them that you know we need to start writing about this. And so, um, it, just to sort of so that I don't leave your question without an answer, I would say yes, it is very important. Yeah. Um, if for no other reason, because then the fact that everyone is—I actually think there's more reasons than this, but. At the very least, what can be said is the fact that everyone is discussing it and it is sort of one of the, the topics that is sort of the discussion of the day. Uh, it is important to have a, con uh, have a concept of it and what its role in fiqh is um, because other people are, are developing concepts on it and then they're running with them and they're, they're going in all sorts of different places with them. Uh, so you need to have... So Yes, it is important. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. think it's there's many other reasons why it's important, and maybe we can we can come back and touch on that again. Maqasid itself, we could probably dedicate an entire episode to it, considering the exemplary work of Ibn Ashur and so on. But I mean, to get straight into it, uh, the reason we're having this discussion and the reason why we're presenting it from the historical point of view to begin with. Um, I guess it requires almost like a premise. So what is sort of, would you say, is the state of the research that's happening today, along with how fiqh is taught, uh, both at an academic and a traditional institutional level? And I mean, what are some of the main differences or maybe some of the main objections even uh, between the Eastern scholarship that exists, uh, along with the Orientalist perspective? Um, that exists today? Um, well, I would say, one thing I would say to, uh, to answer the last part of your question just briefly before jumping into the other uh, aspects. Yeah. Uh, 
generally speaking, the trend in the modern era has been that uh, uh, our Muslim traditional scholars in the Muslim world in the East don't really keep up with Western scholarship. So they're sort of um, in the in the dark about a lot of things. Like you'll find that up until even just recently, like a lot of their discussions will just revolve around refuting Shot, refuting Goldziher, and, and and some others who obviously, I mean, yeah, are very dated to say the least. Um, uh, so you know that is now starting to change because there's been there's a trend now in recent years. Uh, to have more and more translations into Arabic of these Western works. And so that is increasing the exposure. And so I think in the coming years, we're going to see um, sort of what what happens as a result of that, as, as sort of um, the two sides start engaging one another, if you like, even if not directly engaging one another. But... Up until now, it's basically been that the Western Academy writes about us as Muslims, including even, you know, what's going on in the, in the contemporary scene. But we're largely oblivious to what they're doing. Now, it's, we're, we're starting to enter the, the era where both sides, while, you know, the Western Academy is basically studying Islam, uh, or in this context, fiqh and the history of fiqh and even sort of the contemporary state of fiqh. Um, whereas before, that's largely sort of gotten ignored in the Muslim world. I think in, in coming years, and we're already starting to see it, you'll start and you'll start seeing more of an sort of engagement from both sides where now the Muslims will be writing about what the Orientalists are writing and even possibly responding to it um, and engaging with it and, and, and even benefiting from it. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing. Uh, I think from, in terms of what, are the state, what is the state of, um, of uh, studies of tarikh al-fiqh today, uh, I mean, I think one thing that, at least for me, sort of uh, stands out. And again, uh, you know, I'm someone who, as you mentioned, I studied fiqh uh, here in Umul Qura. Uh, university, which is, I think, um, you know, one of the well-known universities in the Islamic world for uh, for people who want to engage in Sharia studies, and this is my specialty fiqh. Um, so, I- I've sort of, at least as far as as, uh, as Saudi Arabia goes, and Umm uh, Quran in particular goes, sort of seen from the inside. Although, in some respects, it will, it is, you know, my experience is somewhat representative of, of largely what's going on in much of the Muslim world. Uh, typically, the history, the history of fiqh in terms of what is taught to students really only comes up as a basic introduction. So, uh, and this is, I think, largely the state of, of, uh, of, uh, of study of tarikh al-fiqh, the history of fiqh, through much of the Muslim world, uh, where it, where it's been introduced as as a subject in universities, uh, it's largely um, an introductory subject. Uh, there was um, a uh, there were two works that were written that are very seminal works 
in terms of uh, uh, sort of surveying the history of fiqh from the from, from the time of the Prophet ﷺ until the modern era. Uh, both of them published in the 1920s. One of them is Al-Fikr al-Sami by uh, Al-Hajawi, and the other one is Tariq al-Tashri' by um, Al-Khudari. Uh, both of whom are actually Tunisian scholars. Al-Khudri, I think, actually went on to become uh, uh, Sheikh Al-Azhar. So he was based in Egypt for much of his academic career. Uh, and I think he was actually in Egypt when he published his work. Uh, these two works then had a great impact on everyone who wrote after them. Because after them, around somewhere around this period, um, it became actually a fairly standard practice to include some sort of introduction to fiqh and the development of fiqh to university curriculums for training uh, fiqh specialists, um, uh, meaning those whose, whose, whose uh, academic specialty is going to be fiqh. So it became, it, this became a fairly standard thing. And as a result of that, you had a lot of, of textbooks that are, are a lot of works that are written basically as it sort of an introductory sort of textbook and there's actually many many works of this uh, of this sort that have been written um and the narrative that is generally presented by in all of them still tends to be largely influenced by the work of al-hajawi and al-khudari uh so um you know I think when this was introduced, it was a very positive development. I think part of the problem is that, the, uh, or at least from my perspective, what I see as a problem is that it hasn't developed beyond that in terms of being integrated into, um, into the curriculum. Uh, it's not something that is given a lot of uh, focus. Uh, I mean, I'm now in the master's. I've finished the coursework portion, portion of the, my master's program. And there was really not, you know, anything dealing with um, with the history as, as an intellectual history uh, in, in, in any of the subjects that we did. Now, it might have come up as a discussion here or there, but certainly there was not anything dedicated to that. To, to the subject, which I think is a glaring sort of, of um, oversight. Uh, I, and again, I can't say for certain that, uh, that, the, the, that uh, this is the case in all other programs and all other universities, but I'm pretty confident that certainly this is, pro this is representative of the dominant trend, that beyond a, a basic introduction, um, that there is not really much attention given to this in the training of uh, of aspiring fuqaha, if you like. So, uh, th I mean, that's definitely, I think, a big problem. That uh, I, Another problem is that these introductions that have written, largely in terms of content, have not developed. And, again, I think part of this comes back to... There's actually two things. One is that this sort of focus on um, on intellectual history, on the development of the intellect, the historical development of the various Shari sciences, is an area that um, 
I'm not saying that nothing has been done on it, but it's an area that is still very much uh, undeveloped. Uh, so, uh, th and this is not just, this is not just in regards to fiqh, you see it with aqidah, you see it with tafsir, usul fiqh, etc., etc., that um, there is work that has been done. There are theses that have been written, there are books that have been written, but um, in terms of integrating these things, in, uh, the, in terms of integrating these things into the actual education, uh, not much has been done. This is aside from from you know uh, sort of surveying and, and discussing. Well, what is this the quality of this uh, research that is being done? Um, uh, you know, I think that in of itself is a discussion to be had. I think part of the problem that we have is that there is a tendency in the Muslim, in the Islamic world that uh, when it comes to higher studies, graduate studies. Uh, masters and phd level studies that are written uh they still tend to be lacking in terms of um critical analysis and the depth of the analysis uh this uh, aspect tends to be lacking and i'm not saying that 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 all studies that are written and all theses that come out of of these uh you know fiqh departments in the muslim world are lacking this but this is definitely you know um a clearly observable problem uh, but there's in spite of that um, uh, some valuable research that is done but how does that valuable research then feed back into the way that the subject is taught unfortunately it doesn't and that itself is something that you know I think is um, is number one it's uh, it's actually not puzzling, given that I've been in the system for a while now, and I understand that you know that is actually what's unfortunately what is to be expected. But it's something that ought to be puzzling. That why is this not taken into account? I mean, just as a small example, we have sort of um, uh, when you when you read in in um, any standard introduction to history of fiqh. Uh, they usually will discuss how after the time of the Prophet ﷺ, initially before the development of the four madhahib, you had regional schools. So you have, um, you know, the Kufan school and the Medinan school and the um, the uh, Meccan school, and you have uh. Uh, these three being the, the, the three most important ones, but uh, others as well. Um, and you, then you have also the division between Ahlul Ra'i, who are centered in um, Iraq, and Ahlul Hadith, who are centered in Medina. But there are certain questions about this, about this typical sort of uh, narrative that is presented. And there are actually some scholars who have have questioned or challenged aspects of it. So, for example, Mustafa Zarqa, who is, you know, someone who is uh, an extremely famous, well-known and almost universally uh, recognized uh, modern scholar of fiqh, has actually challenged aspects of this narrative and called them into question. Uh, irrespective of, you know, uh, is he right or wrong about this, but he has challenged it. 
and a few others have challenged it as well. But when the subject is taught, or when introductory works are written, those discussions are not taken into account, irrespective of you know what view the the writer might take. You would expect he ought to, if the if the field was developing as it should, those sorts of discussions should be taken into account. But that doesn't tend to happen, and so uh, part of the problem is that you know that when research is done and ideas are presented, there's there is still a sort of a gap between. Uh, the research that is being done um, and uh, the influence that they're having on the state of the academic discussion, if you like, or the academic uh, debate on that, on the, on the field. Um, I mean, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of times, a lot of these, these academic papers when they're published or, uh, as often as not when it comes to many of these theses, including one, some that are very important, they never get published. And um, if they don't get published, usually that means you just, at least until, certainly until very recently, it just meant that, well, you'll just never see it. So someone will write a PhD thesis on a subject spending, you know, four, five, or even more years researching and writing and then it'll never get published and no one will ever see it. And so, you know, what is that? if nobody sees it and nobody reads it and it's not published and it's not even made accessible, well, what is it, what is it contributed to the discussion? I mean, I'm a student at Umm Al-Qura University. So you would think at the very least I would have access to everything at... Uh, that has been produced by Mulkura University uh, in terms of, uh, of you know, acad uh, higher academic papers that have been done in the university. Um, and they have actually been making an effort now to make a lot of that available online on their website in recent years. But before recent years when they were doing that, basically it was, you know, getting a hold of it was like, if you knew somebody, you know, you might be able to get a hold of things. But otherwise, it would be sort of like pulling teeth. If you, if you are a student in the graduate department, you can get partial access to these things. You can't, they, they won't just give them to you. You won't just be able to access all of them like you would like. Um, and, uh, or, you know, you sort of have to go through, like if you know somebody who knows somebody. So like, and honestly, you know, why? Like, what purpose do these, do all these, these research papers play in the development of the academic life of the Ummah if, you know, they're sitting and collecting dust even 30, 40 years after they were written? But that's where we are. One, so, uh, one quick thing that uh, we just mentioned is that you mentioned before that uh, a lot of the times much of what's coming out from these Orientalist uh, universities in the West, a lot of it hasn't maybe been published into Arabic. Um, therefore, there may be a delay in sort of the euphoria of responses that we might see from the Eastern scholarship. But then you could pose the argument that, you know, majority of these institutions are producing English-speaking students 
uh, at a scholarship level and at a you know advanced student level. So then that same question can be posed that, you know, if these traditional institutions are producing these students to this calibre, why are they not able to sort of assert that level of criticalness? You know, a lot of these traditional institutes, especially like the institute that you're at, Umul Qura, is producing, producing English-speaking students that do eventually go back to the West. So then the question can be posed is that, if the traditional institutes are producing scholars, are producing advanced students of knowledge, why are they not able to tackle the problems when they come back to the West? Well, I mean, I think uh, the the answer to that, it's a bit um, it's multi-faceted. Uh, One is that um, uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, um, I think probably the majority of Western students who come to the East to study in these university institutions, uh, they tend to finish the bachelor's and go back. So that's one thing to take into consideration. Uh, and there are reasons for that. For example, if you're in Medina University, it's actually very it, it tends to be very difficult to get into the master's program. So in Medina University, you know, in a given master's program, you might have over 100 applicants and they'll take, you know, say maybe like 15 of them into yeah. the actual program. So getting in is going to be a bit of a challenge. And the Westerners certainly have a bigger challenge because oftentimes they come, they don't know Arabic. So they spend two years in the Arabic program, which two years is, you know, it gives them a good, uh, you know, start. But you're not going to become proficient in the language in just two years. And so what happens then in, in practical terms for many of them is that they spend another, you know, maybe they're two years into their bachelor's before they sort of sort of really start feeling comfortable uh, reading, reading in Arabic. And it, so, they, they, so by the time that they're actually starting to really benefit from their studies, they only have about two years left. Yeah. And then, you know, it's after the, after that last two years, it's sort of time for them to go back. So, you know, there are certain challenges in, 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 in that sense that, that these, um, and I think part of the problem is that these institutes have not really um, tailored their programs to meet the needs of these students as they should. Uh, you know, if 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 that six-year period that they're spending for the the Arabic program and then the bachelor's is not enough, then give them more. Because if the, if the purpose is to train them to be proficient in whatever it is you've brought them, you've admitted them to receive training, then you should give. Then you should tailor the program, create a tailored program that actually meets their needs, and that is not done. Um, that's, that's, that's one aspect of it. Then we have the students who get into the, uh, master's program. The reality, the reality is, is that, um, I think to a considerable extent, and there might be exceptions to this, there's no doubt that there are exceptions to this, whether we look at, whether talking about, uh, exceptional faculty or exceptional students, uh, but, um, the, the programs don't 
really the programs here i don't think that they give that they do a good job of giving the students sort of the critical tools to engage these sorts of things so for example if you know you're talking about um uh western english speaking graduates of of these programs coming back and engaging for example with uh with what the uh oriental orientalist the western academy is writing about history of fiqh and you know if he's been through a program like the one that i went through where at the master's level we didn't have even a course on the history of fiqh or at least not a dedicated course i'm not saying it didn't come up it came up in certain ways um but the you know the ways that it came up were almost more like sort of bibliographical than an actual intellectual history um how would you know what what tools has he been been given to engage these things it, it, generally in terms of the state of studies you know um there's there's not uh, a strong enough emphasis or forget about strong enough emphasis there's not an emphasis on developing uh critical thinking on developing the tools for original research, for uh, for doing in-depth analysis, so you know the tools that are being given to the, the students who are getting into the graduate program are certainly lacking uh, for them to do that. And then this is aside from the fact that you know if they've gone to these institutions in the Muslim world and now have come back, and you know maybe some of them become imam of a masjid or what have you. Um, you know, what sort of institutional support do they have to carry on doing academic work? I don't think that they, they generally do. So this is so in, with all of these factors that I just mentioned, um, you know, the it's it would be surprising if they did do what you what you just asked. Let me just back up just a bit. I didn't actually yep. discuss about uh, the state of studies in uh, of uh, history of fiqh amongst orientalists other than to say that you know that muslims are not that muslim scholarship until recently has not really been engaging with it i'll just say briefly uh, that, yeah, absolutely. Um, that orientalists have done and when i use the word orientalists i don't necessarily mean it uh in the charged uh, sort of in the loaded fashion that uh, muslims oftentimes look at the term it's true that that many in the western academy do still have that stereotypical um, orientalist Eurocentrism that looks down on Islam and Islamic civilization. That attitude is present, but it's not universal, and it shouldn't be used to automatically dismiss everything that the Western Academy is producing. I think there's actually a lot that, that they produce that is, um, if it's not, um, you know, uh, uh, necessarily all of it correct, but a lot of it is uh, thought-provoking. And obviously, it's not all of the same level of quality, but there is important work that is being done that that um, the Muslim student of fiqh, I think, can benefit from. Uh, again, with that caveat that it has to, you have to keep in mind that, that we as Muslims have certain fundamentals uh, that we believe in, for for a non-muslim academic he doesn't believe in any of those fundamentals so everything is up up for questioning for him 
that can be sort of a double-edged sword in the sense that, um, you know, there are certain things that maybe um, that they will call into question that maybe, you know, uh, a traditional Muslim from a, a practicing background who's then gone through traditional training would not think the question that maybe should be questioned. But then also it, it, the, there's the problem that there are things that simply there's no need to question them because to question them is absurd. Uh, and that particularly, you should particularly see that when it comes to the way that Orientalists deal with um, early Islamic history, particularly the first two centuries of Islamic history, because when it comes to the, the two, first two centuries of Islamic history, because the sources that we have for that period all tend to be things that have been reported with Isnad, um, the Orientalists don't haven't really sort of reached any sort of consensus uh, amongst themselves on on what is the relative historical value of these materials. In other words, they 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 they're willing to uh, to uh, in other words, they are skeptical about the value of hadith, about the value of uh, these narrations that are narrated by Isnad, uh, a level of skepticism that varies from from Western scholar from one Western scholar to another, but the general trend is that uh, the the skepticism is quite excessive, uh, and you know it, sometimes it reaches absurd levels of even questioning did the Prophet ﷺ even exist, um, you know maybe. Uh, Makkah is not in Makkah where we know it today, and the Kaaba was not in it is not the, the Kaaba in Makkah that we know today. Maybe it was somewhere completely different in Iraq or Jordan or God knows where. And these sorts of things that are they're just patently absurd. Um, so you know there are things obviously that you need to be aware of. There are pitfalls. There are things that actually have little value. Um, but and you know there is a sort of a Eurocentrism uh, in all of, all of these writings. But I think for the, uh, the well-read student who is a critical thinker, uh, I think it is important for him to read what the Western Academy is producing because there, there is value that he will find there that he won't find... Um, uh, anywhere else, simply because they'll, they'll explore questions or explore issues from angles that um, they tend to be the, the, the ones who focus on them. So uh, for a fiqh student, I think it is actually important to take benefit from these uh, the, the Western Academy while uh, being aware that there are certain pitfalls, there are certain limitations. I mean, and one of the limitations is that that uh, many of these people who who go into um, to Islamic studies in the West, uh, you know, their Arabic is not very good because maybe they've they've decided at the level of their graduate studies that they want to focus on Islamic studies, and so then they start taking modules in Arabic. Uh, if or maybe you know, or even they may have had a few modules of Arabic while they were in their bachelors, um, but I mean certainly that's not going to be the level of proficiency that that someone who has been immersed in the Arabic language his whole life, someone who has been formally studying it for many years 
and immersed in it uh, like a traditionally skate trained scholar would have. So, so many of you know many of the 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 things that are written are written by people who have these sorts of limitations. Uh, so that is actually one of the sort of the dirty secrets of of the Western Academy is that um, uh, as that sometimes they will just badly misread things because the Arabic is not very good. I'm not saying all of them do that, but again, these pitfalls exist. So, um, uh, the this, the Muslim student of fiqh uh, should benefit from the, these works while also being aware that, look, there are these pitfalls. Uh, but part of the reason that these works, um, the, the Western Academies, uh, what it's producing has benefit is because at the graduate level, um, they give the, the the student or the researcher a certain degree of uh, number one intellectual freedom uh, and number two um, actual sort of I guess you could say research tools that allow them to produce something of value. And it doesn't mean that all of them will actually then produce something of value, but those factors are there that allow for that. And so there is, you know, um, research of value. Uh, and I think, you know, so, uh, an example of that, an obvious example of that when it comes to dealing with the history and development of fiqh is uh, Wa'il Halaq. Wa'il Halaq is obviously somebody who has been writing for a long time. Uh, I think his, his academic career now spans 40 years and has written many books, um, and, you know, there's, I think anyone who reads any of his works can see that clearly there is, you know, value there. And he's not the only one. Although it's interesting to note that Wal Halak is himself someone who is actually an Arab, albeit a Christian Arab, but he's an Arab um, from, uh, from Palestine. So, again, you know, that's you know, just interesting to note that he, he, I think, already had sort of a leg up on a lot of others in that um, his Arabic is actually quite good. Anyways, that I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that for um, dealing with sort of yeah. uh, just just a comment. I would say. I mean, from personal experience and observations, you, you know, both in the traditional institutes that exist in the West that do teach Islamic studies, um, along with you know Western academia, uh, university level, and studying Islamic sciences. One of the things that I guess I've come to conclude on is that in the traditional institutes, there tends to be a level of deficiency in critical thinking where a lot of things are just taken for granted and where questions need to be asked, they are just simply not asked whatsoever. Um, whereas within academia, you have the ability yes. to do so. But then at the other yeah. end of the spectrum, you have this issue where someone who hasn't actually experienced traditional learning and they go into academia. Um, one of the things that's, um, that's really interesting about, you know, Eastern universities that study Sharia and Western universities that study Sharia, I mean, in an Islamic university in the East, you would actually go through a mutun fiqh, whereas in a Western university, you would never go through a mutun fiqh you would just sort of analyze fit from an historical perspective and a contemporary perspective. So I guess that's where a lot of the issues concerning, um, you know, modernity come out from where you have students going in and coming out with claims that hijab isn't even an obligation. Uh, 
you know, some of these aspects of the Sharia, they don't sort of meet the requirements that are needed today. And I guess that's where critical thinking is sort of taken way overboard and produces a lot more problems. Um, so, like, very quickly, I would ask that. Yeah, I think, I think, I think yeah. one way we could express the the difference is that in the in the traditional, you know, in the, in the traditional uh, uh, setting, uh, the Eastern sort of setting, uh, the 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 environment is such that you know where important questions need to be asked, they're not asked, and in in some cases, uh, asking them is even discouraged and frowned upon, and we'll get. Yeah. In the, um, get you into trouble with your teachers and and what have you. Yeah. Uh, that's on the one end, and then on the other end, the other sort of extreme is that you know the the door is wide open to ask and explore any sort of questions, no matter how stupid they may actually be. Yeah, definitely. And so that is sort of you know the the contrast between east and west. And I guess it really does come to show, uh, and you know, the fruits really come to the presence when you have sort of individuals that have dedicated their lives to maybe in a traditional Western institute or an Eastern institute, and then they go further to actually enter Western academia, maybe at a master's or a PhD level. And actually, as suddenly, you know, get exposed to that level of critical thinking that they haven't had for a very long time. And suddenly that can create, you know, huge, immense benefits uh, in the work that they're producing. So maybe some of the uh, thoughts that they have been suppressed for such a long time. I guess that definitely proved to show that it does have its benefits, but obviously within reason. Um, yeah, I, th- I think in terms of... Uh... A Muslim scholar wanting to take benefit from studying in the Western Academy, I would definitely say that um, it's definitely advisable that he've had a good traditional training first. Yeah. Uh, not because everything that he will learn in his traditional training will necessarily be correct, but because it will give him a reference point to start off with. It'll give him a good base to start off with so that when he's questioning things, he's questioning things relative to a certain fixed narrative that he's now perhaps considering, you know, how it needs to be modified and developed as opposed to going in with absolutely nothing. Yeah. If you're going in with absolutely nothing and the questions that are being asked are things like, well, do you know, did the Prophet even exist? Again, this might be, this is a bit of a caricature, but since that question is actually one of the questions that people have explored, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's not just something that I'm making up. Yeah. Uh, when, yeah. when, when, when you have nothing to ground you whatsoever, and these are the sort of questions that are being explored, you will just be lost. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, for someone who doesn't have that background, uh, going into the, you know, the uh, Islamic studies is probably not advisable. For someone who has a good traditional training, I think uh, there is benefit that can be had. Uh, whether that be by actually enrolling in these programs, or by produ- by by reading, you know, the the scholarship that the Western Academy produces. So, I mean, having discussed these topics, um, so many more questions that will naturally be asked, and you know, some of the you know the really really uh, fundamental questions, such as the Sunnah and the Quran and so on and so forth, I, that involves a much huger discussion. 
uh, to be taking place. So I think what we do is um, end the episode here and um, hopefully begin those discussions from the roots and really dive into them episode. And we have, I mean, we have quite a few episodes uh, just on the history of fiqh within itself to address. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to address all of those at that time. Um, and one thing that I would like to episode on SMN would be that, I mean, considering the fact that at the moment you are fully into your research and you're working on your thesis, I mean, can we have any clues or ideas on what you're working on your thesis on? Uh, or perhaps sort of what led you to actually work on that thesis? Uh, well, okay, uh, when it comes to my personal thesis, uh, the topic that I'm working on, I'm actually still working on getting the topic approved by the department so I can officially start working on it. But I've been researching it for quite some time now. Um, is sort of looking at um, uh, certain questions about the fiqh of nikah, of marriage, of uh, family law, if you like. And looking at sort of what are the ahkam or rulings that are permanent and the ahkam and rulings that uh, can change from based on changing of customs, changing of time, place, social expectations um, uh, because of various factors. The reason, the reason, the reason that I'm I'm looking at this topic is because, uh, and this actually sort of ties into what we're going to be discussing, uh, possibly in the coming episodes, um, when we come to you know the state of fiqh today in the modern era. Uh, my personal feeling is that that um, when it comes to fiqh in the modern era. Uh, the biggest challenges facing fuqaha relate to basically the the areas of fiqh once you move past the ibadat. I mean, obviously ibadat are not going to radically change. There are sometimes nawazil or new issues that come up uh, related to any of the ibadat uh, that require answers, but the, the, the areas where you have sort of the greatest amount of change uh, are the areas that are related to um, the mu'amalat, uh, if you like, family law, financial law, um, obviously the, judici the judicial system, criminal law. Uh, obviously, there are certain major challenges facing the ummah in that respect. Also, from if you consider from the angle that um, that that throughout history the sharia has always been sort of the law of the land as uh, for 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 the islamic world for muslim countries uh, obviously as represented as interpreted and applied by uh, the four uh, madhahib at least from the time that the four madhahib became you know established and settled uh, that you know, this is this is how the Sharia has been applied, and the the Sharia has been applied through the means of these these four schools of thought. Um, and you know, judges who were appointed were always 
going to be representatives of one of these four schools. And I, I think it, you know, it goes without saying that a lot has changed in that regard in the last century. Uh, so the, um, we've had basically secular law codes enacted. Um, the aspects of law, particularly family law, that are still somewhat rooted in the Sharia. And when I say somewhat rooted in the Sharia, for example, you know, in for the for the most part in the Muslim world, the 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 uh, legal codes still recognize, for example, that um, divorce is uh, enacted through an oral pronouncement by the husband and uh, that you know it is limited to three times the third time being final etc which obviously is completely alien to 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 western law you know in western law you don't have this sort of uh pronouncement of divorce by the husband as an oral pronouncement and then it becomes effective and you know it has three times and various rules that are attached to it largely that framework still exists in the muslim world but it's not rooted necessarily in a particular madhab uh sometimes it's you know a mix and match of of the four madhabs and even from outside the four madhabs because there, uh, sometimes certain rules will be adapted adopted from uh you know the personal istihadat of intaimia or they will be adopted from even from non-Sunni madhabs, or in some cases, just a new sort of um, of uh, ruling that has just been created by the legislative uh, body that has drafted the laws um, that may or may not be in line with the Sharia. Uh, but whether or not it is. Uh, it's it's oftentimes being enacted without the consultation of the scholars. So the sort of authority that 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 the fuqaha as a body had has been stripped away from them. So, so you know that obviously raises major challenges, a major question. Um, uh, so in the area of family law, there is some sort of semblance of sharia. When you move away from that, from financial law, there's really far less of it. Um, so, the, you know, the predominant uh, financial system that exists in, in the Muslim world, uh, you have uh, banks that uh, deal in interest, uh, that deal in usurious loans, uh, and all sorts of financial practices that are uh, certainly not condoned by classical fiqh or by contemporary fuqaha for um, and so, and and what's more is that the authority to regulate these has been stripped away from them and given to others. So the, this area, when you move away from the ibadat, when you move away from the masjid, and you move away from the janaza, uh, and these other areas that are perhaps still in the hands of of, uh, of scholars, uh, there are actually major challenges. Meaning, you know, if we're going to create a financial order uh, that uh, is uh, governed by the Sharia, what does that mean? How will that be done? How will it be carried out? These are big questions. Um, so for me, when, I, when choosing a topic, I knew that I wanted to, to do something that's definitely outside of Ibadat because this is sort of where the big questions are. 
And the reason I sort of decided to move towards Nikah and looking at what is the scope for change is because, um, you know, although I'm, I'm, I'm considerably interested in also the uh, financial aspect, I mean, obviously, as, I said, as, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, I have a minor in economics. Originally, it was my intention to do actually a major in economics, not in political science. That was what I wanted to do. But for reasons that were out of my control, I ended up having to do a minor instead of a major, which is what would have, would have been my preference. Uh, so, I mean, this is obviously something that is of, has been of interest uh, to me from the time when I was in university uh, pursuing my secular, secular studies before I came to Ummul Qura. Uh, so it's, and it's definitely something that is still of great interest to me. But ultimately, one of the reasons I sort of, gradu- uh, sort of gravitated towards this particular area is because there's a lot that is being written and discussed about um, about sort of Islamic finance and Islamic banking and, uh, you know, Islamic economics. So, for example, in the Muslim world now and uh, in, in, uh, in universities, you will often have dedicated departments for Islamic economics, uh, irrespective of what is my particular view of the of the the actual state of the field, if you like, in those areas at the moment. It's a war, It's an area that is, you know, a lot is being written about it. But I felt that you know, that that this aspect, the aspect of uh, of family law, uh, is also has certain these sorts of modern challenges surrounding it. But it tends to be sort of ignored in those discussions. So I wanted to sort of look at well, what is the scope of change? Uh, uh, and sort of what are the parameters for change uh, for rulings related to this um, related to this area of fiqh? Uh, particularly because as I started looking into um, uh, to this area of fiqh, I, I started to feel that that um, you know if you want to apply fiqh today to the modern era. A lot of the rulings of the four mizahib, um, uh, applying them today, to say the least, would not be a straightforward matter. You can't simply just take the ahkam as they are in the books and simply just apply them. So the question is that you know, if you are a mufti, uh, to say nothing of you know, developing an actual legal system based on the sharia, what are the sharia rulings for? Uh, family law today, uh, particularly given you know there are certain major changes that are taking place in the makeup of of, of modern society with the uh, with urbanization, with um, uh, uh, breaking down of the traditional extended family networks, um, and a lot of other issues and questions. So I wanted to sort of explore um, what are the ramifications of that as sort of a first step towards trying to offer a, a framework for solutions, if you like. That in, is, is basically uh, a very simplified version of, of uh, what I'm 
looking at doing in my thesis. Yeah, no, I, that definitely sounds like very, very vital issues that uh, require research. And there isn't actually much that is done that's out there, whether in paper formats or theoretical formats. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned that was really important was um, seeing what there is in the classical Mutun of Fiqh and going past Ibadah and seeing if any of it actually even works or if it's relevant to us. And I guess that's one of the key topics that we'll also be covering later on. Um, but I think uh, this is a relevant time for us to sort of take a pause and hopefully we can start addressing all of those issues as much as possible within the next few episodes. So Jazakallah Khairan, once again, for coming and joining us on this podcast. And if anyone has any questions, if anybody has any feedback, so on and so forth, you're more than welcome to join the Discord server um, and actually interact with us directly. And I think from there, uh, ma salama, and we hope to see you on the next one.